In this episode, I'm joined by Brad Warner, Zen teacher and best-selling author of Hardcore Zen and The Other Side of Nothing. Brad recounts his unusual childhood, his passion for punk rock ethics, and reveals what thwarted his teenage desire to become a born-again Christian. Brad describes his first encounter with Zen, shares the secret of his decades of daily practice, and explains why he is at odds with the culture and institutions of mainline American Zen. Brad also discusses his awakening experience, the significance of Dharma transmission, his new book on ethics, and what Dogen's mysterious metaphors have in common with the TV show Ancient Aliens. So without further ado, Brad Warner. Brad Warner, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, I'm so delighted to be speaking with you today. And uh, having just finished reading your latest book, The Other Side of Nothing, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space and Being, which was recently published. So, well, first of all, congratulations on the latest book. What's this, eight now, number eight or nine? I think it's 10. Actually, I was trying to work that out the other day because uh, New World Library has published almost all of my books, but a couple of them have come out from other people. And that's what makes me a little vague on the number. But I think it's 10. And you know what? I think you're right. And maybe it's nine because I was thinking Tarantino decided to do 10 films and maybe I should stop with the next book. Like he, he's going to stop with the 10th film. <laughs> well, well, what would be your final book then? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I have to I have to think about that. I actually I actually have this thing where I write every book as if it's going to be the last book I'll ever write. It's just always in the back of my mind. I never like put it in the book, but I'm like, you know, if you get everything out, you know, that's my policy. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's it's fascinating. I'd I'd love to ask you some uh, a lot of questions actually from what you've written there. And I noticed you're wearing a t-shirt with one, yeah. of, one of the key references in the book. Perhaps you could explain that. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, uh, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. And uh, I think his name is Giorgio. I know it's Giorgio, but I don't know how you pronounce the last name, Skalos, I think, Greek guy. And he's on this uh, TV show called Ancient Aliens, which is uh, one of my favorite uh, TV shows. It's, it's I, I, I watch it semi-ironically but it's always about how aliens were uh, on earth and they built the pyramids and whatnot but it's been running for like 15 years but the, he never actually says on the show i'm not saying it was aliens but it was aliens but that's kind of a meme that's grown up around him because he sort of almost always kind of says that on the show and i noticed dogan who is the the guy who founded the sect of zen that i study in Oops, sorry he uh, he contradicts himself all the time which is one of the most famous and kind of frustrating things about his writings that it's 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 got contradictions all over the place so in in this new book i i just kept every time he would i would reference one of dogan's contradictions i would think about i'd think of oh yeah it's like he's saying it's not aliens but it was aliens so i just put that into the book but i had to i felt like i had to explain the reference for anybody who hasn't seen the show so <laughs> you know yeah that's great well before we get to the book then i'd like to ask you a bit about your your life and biography sure Perhaps starting starting with your childhood you you write in the other side of zen uh, my family was not religious i don't mean they were a bunch of raging atheists or anything they just didn't care about religion one way or the other and you also say you were vaguely Protestant. Yeah. And you go on to write, it struck me as odd that no one else I knew seemed to notice the awesome strangeness of simply being alive. They all appeared to take it for granted that this place, this planet Earth existed. 
and they just kind of went on from there. They were interested in football games or Dungeons and Dragons or parties or smoking weed or whatever else they were into, but they didn't seem interested in the incredible mystery of this life, this place, this state of being. So I'm wondering if you could say a little about your childhood and uh, the context in which you grew up. Yeah, well, I grew up, uh, it, it's, it's one of these things where to me, it seems normal. And then when I talk about it to other people, they go, oh, that's really weird. Uh, because I, I was born in um, Hamilton, Ohio, which if I, I feel like the names of the places where I was born and, and, uh, and raised in Ohio just evoke what they are. You know, it's just a, it was a small town in Ohio. And then we moved to another small town called Wadsworth, Ohio. And that's where I grew up. Uh, as a as a little kid and then when I was uh, you know I always forget it was seven or eight years old we uh, shipped off to Nairobi Kenya because my dad got a job uh, well he was working for Firestone Tire Company and they decided to send him to Africa to work in their uh, in their in their place in Africa uh, I think it was a fairly new operation at the time and they were just getting people from because uh, the home office was Akron Ohio and they were getting people to bring it up to speed. So I grew up uh, like four years of my childhood, almost four years, were in Africa. And then we went back to Ohio. So that was this big, uh, there was this big shift in my in my life that, like I say, it, it sort of seems normal to me, because that's all I know. But it, it, it I think, really uh, changed my whole outlook. And one of the things that I discovered in in Africa, there's this huge Indian. Well, you're you're, English, you're British, so you know uh, about this, but Americans don't realize that there's this big Indian population in East Africa. Um, so so I was aware of that culture and really fascinated by it, especially their their religious iconography and and, and their food. <laughs> you know, because we didn't have stuff like that in Wadsworth, Ohio, at least not in those days. And I was just amazed. Wow, this is great. Um, and uh, when I came back, I was 11 years old. So there was this big gap and, and, and it was all sort of removed all that, you know, exotic culture and stuff. And when I got to uh, university, I decided I wanted to study something about it. And I was looking for something about Hinduism in the, in the, you know, the catalog that Kent State University in Ohio published. And I couldn't find anything about Hinduism, but there was a class on offer called Zen Buddhism. And I, the only thing I knew about Buddhism was, well, I, I knew enough that Buddha was an Indian guy, but I knew Zen Buddhism was the Japanese version of this Indian religion. And that's, that's probably everything I knew about Zen Buddhism when I signed up for this class. So it wasn't like I was, a lot of people come to, uh, to things like Zen because they're, you know, they've read this or that, and they're really interested in their, you know, like, I want to study Zen. But I just, I just knew it was uh, the, the closest thing I could find to what I really wanted to study. And uh, I was just amazed the, the teacher was this guy named Tim McCarthy and he was, uh, he had been a student of a teacher named Koben Chino Otogawa Roshi, um, who's since passed on, but he was a Japanese teacher and Tim had been his student and I just, um, I just liked him and I liked the philosophy I'd been uh, really heavily into the punk rock scene, which in uh, in Akron, Ohio, the punk rock scene was heavily influenced by what was going on in Washington, D.C., which was the straight edge movement, which was a very ethically based sort of uh, punk rock. You know, they, they were into not drinking, not smoking, not um, they, they had uh, 
a lot of ideas about uh, just ethics, you know, sexual ethics and all this other stuff. And so I was really, I really thought that was a great thing. Uh, and when I discovered Zen, to me, it seemed like, oh, this is, this is what we've been doing in the punk rock scene, only they've taken it all the way, you know, they've, they've gone to the logical conclusion of, of, this, uh, of this ethical and, and moral thing. And also they had that mystical side with the meditation practice. So I, I just started practicing Zazen. Uh, about 10 years after all this started, I got the opportunity to go to Japan and teach English. And I had some Japanese uh, interest in Japanese culture, mainly from Japanese monster movies that I'd watched as a kid, Godzilla and all those things. And so I, I moved to Japan, taught English for a year, and then I got a job with one of those companies that make the Japanese monster movies. And, and and worked there for another 10 years in Japan. And then they sent me to Los Angeles and I worked for them in Los Angeles for, for five years. And then the company uh, had a lot of problems and I ended up uh, being one of the, actually they wanted me to continue, but I didn't really want to continue under the new management. So I left that company and, and now I do this, <laughs> but I'd already started writing books. Uh, my first book, Hardcore Zen and first and second, maybe even my third book all came out while I was still working for that company. Um, but I, but I no longer work for them and now they're having great success. So, uh, <laughs> I kind of maybe shouldn't have quit. I'm curious what it was that attracted you about the punk ethics, particularly. Um, just, you know, it's hard to say. I, I, like I said, in the piece that you wrote or you read, I didn't have a religious upbringing. So, but I was interested in people who had religions. I had some uh, friends, the, the uh, Tommy, he goes by Tom now, I always knew him as Tommy Kashingaki and the Kashingaki family. They were people who lived around the corner from us. Uh, their father had come from uh, Tanzania. Anyway, they were Catholic and uh, they were, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting that you've got religion in your life. And I, I would try to, to figure out and ask a lot of questions about that. So, so I always had this idea of, of trying to live a good life. And I thought maybe religions had the, the key uh, to that. Um, and the punk rock scene seemed to be just into doing what, you know, it was, it was the early 80s. So the Cold War had gotten to such a point that I, I was convinced at the time that uh, the world would no longer be here by the year 2022. I thought we were going to, I thought Reagan and um, who was who was in there uh, was it Brezhnev at the time. Anyway, I thought they were going to blow us up. You know, I was I was uh, I was absolutely convinced of that. And uh, I think a lot of my life decisions were based on the idea that well, they're going to blow everything up <laughs> before 1990 or whatever I thought at the time. Um, and uh, and I wanted to to find what was the right thing. Maybe maybe something that would deviate us from from that path. Uh, or maybe just do the right thing while I'm still, uh, I've still got the chance to, that was uh, important to me. I don't know. It's kind of funny when I think about it, why would that be important to a 19 year old? But it was. Hmm. Another interest of yours along those lines, you mentioned actually hinted at it was Christianity. Yeah. You write, when I tried to become a Christian, I found that I was required to believe a lot of stuff that I couldn't believe, which yeah. was an insurmountable insurmountable barrier to my ever becoming a Christian. 
this was a huge disappointment because in my late teens, I really wanted to be a Christian. Uh, could you say something about that? Seems an interesting desire. What was behind that? Yeah, gosh, you're asking questions I haven't thought of that much. Um, it's uh, well, I mean, it, of course, it was the it was the the religion, you know, I'm uh, being an American and, and also being in, in Kenya. You you may know this, I, but uh, a lot of Americans assume Kenya is a, a big Muslim country, but it's not. It's uh, it's it's absolutely a Christian uh, country. So, you know, I grew up surrounding by it and surrounded by it and uh, loved Jesus Christ Superstar when I was a kid and then got in, you know, from that got into, well, what's what's this really about? What's the, the actual deal with Christianity? And I, I was uh, attracted to it. And I thought, well, well, maybe these Christians have, uh, you know, the answer or, or something. Uh, and I remember going to churches in, you know, Wadsworth and Akron, Ohio, when I was in my late teens, uh, hoping that it would be inspirational, and I would find the Lord and, you know, in my heart and all this stuff that they advertise. But as as I said in the excerpt, they they expected a lot of uh, belief, and that was a, that was the big barrier. They 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 um, wanted you to believe impossible things. I mean, it would get as radical as believing that um, dinosaurs never existed, and and uh, you know there were Adam and Eve on Noah's Ark or whatever. I don't know, you know, all those kind of crazy things. To just even even things like believing the story was literally true you know the the story of uh, christ and his resurrection and stuff and i would go well, why does it have to be literally true you know it uh, it uh, it's still it's still a good story and we can still learn a lot without having to no no you must believe that it's literally true and i go well i don't know if it's literally true you know i wasn't there um so that insistence on what i believed i could never make sense out of that, and I, I still—it's something I talk about a lot because it's—it's it's fascinating to me how how uh, belief works. Um, because in the Zen tradition, there's there's really no emphasis on belief. You you can believe the the story of Buddha and, and whoever else if you want, but there's no there's no there's no requirement to believe it you, you just do the practice whether you whether you believe it or not and and that I found really uh I thought well that's great you know if I don't have to believe it uh I can do it <laughs> do you think if there had been a kind of practice like Zazen that you could have engaged with directly um in that Christian context um you might that might have hooked you despite the context of uh, the requirement of belief, or do you think it needed to both that action of Zazen in Zen, as well as that you don't need to believe anything view? Well, I like, I like the practice. I like the, the, the fact that there is a meditation practice. There's something you can do and that Dogen was really uh, um, into this idea of, of you, you do this. It, this is my, my teacher in Japan used to say that it's a philosophy of action. And I, I took that to mean it's a philosophy that you do rather than a philosophy that you kind of keep in your, in your head. Um, had there been, I, I've read some of the Christian mystical literature since then and, and thought it was, it was really great. And there's some, there are certain Christian mystics who sound like Zen Buddhists. Uh, in, in fact, um, there was a Scottish guy, uh, John Scotus Eriogena, I think is his name. And I was reading some of his stuff uh, not too long ago. 
thinking, wow, this really sounds like Zen. And then I looked it up and he predates uh, a lot of the, the Zen movement. Uh, the Zen movement sort of started about, uh, I think about you know, AD 1, CE 1000 or AD 1000, however you say, say it. And he was, uh, he was a, a little bit before that. Was it no, no, it, it, Zen predates that. But anyway, sorry, my, 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 don't listen to me for historical. I, I, I actually majored in history and in, in, in university, but I'm terrible with dates. Anyway, whatever, Eugenia definitely came before Dogen. I remember uh, being uh, struck by that. And, and he was saying stuff that sounded like what Dogen said in Japan, you know, a few hundred years later. Uh, but putting it in a Christian context with God and Christ and in, instead of Buddha and Buddha nature and all of these things. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think that in a lot of these, the, the mystical branches of most religions are really similar, which I, I think is, is interesting that the, the Sufism in, in Islam and, and Christian mysticism and uh, some of the Hindu mystics in the Advaita tradition and the Zen Buddhists, they all kind of say really similar things. They're not exactly the same. The, pro the approaches are, are, are different, uh, but, um, but there's a core there. And that, that actually makes me go, oh yeah, there must be something to this. These people sort of discovered this thing independently. And there's a, there's a certain kind of materialistic scientific bias against anything mystical as being, you know, kind of woolly headed and, and, uh, you know, unsupported by any evidence. But I think there is a, a certain amount of actual evidence for the truth of the mystical experience, just in the fact that so many people in so many cultures that had no contact with each other until the, the modern era were, were running into the same sort of, of things and, exp and, and expressing it in, uh, in often very similar ways. So, I don't know. I think I went really astray from the question there, but. Uh, no, that's very interesting, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, I've enjoyed many of your YouTube videos. Uh, listeners and viewers will no doubt be aware of Brad's uh, YouTube channel, Brad Warner. If you search that in YouTube, and of course, I'll link that below. And uh, one of the themes in, in your videos that you discuss on occasion is this idea of organizations and yeah. you're not really a fan of religious organizations and in fact when your teacher Nishijima Roshi uh, died you were actually in charge you were the head yeah, of, yeah. of the organization he left behind and and soon thereafter dissolved it yeah um and one of the things that you have said along those lines is that Zen to you as you're saying it's the it's really around the practice yeah and together to do Zazen and of course certainly in, in American Zen, it seems that uh, there's a lot more to Zen than that. Uh, in, often there are positions of belief or yeah. mission statements, ethical statements, political positions and so on, um, tenets of faith actually. Um, yeah. So I'm curious about that. What, do you reflect often on, um, on Zen as it's popularly presented and experienced in Buddhism and the kind of Zen that, that you're talking about? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think about it a lot. I've, I've, I kind of practice outside of any institution. My, my first teacher, uh, Tim, was very, his, uh, Coben had kind of 
his brother was a big higher up, uh, as still is, I think, in the Soto organization, which is uh, you know the, the derived from Dogen's tradition in Japan, and he was like an important institutional guy, uh, my first teacher's teacher's brother. <laughs> so that's uh, very confusing. Uh, and, but Coben himself didn't like the organization and kind of split from it, and then. When I ran into Nishijima Roshi in Japan, it was the same thing. He was he was actually ordained by the head of the Soto Shu in Japan, and really had a very low opinion of of the organization. And when I, I think he's he was ostensibly part of it, but he he never he never paid any attention to them. In fact, he would always he would often kind of put them down as being kind of a guild of funeral directors is what he would call them when he when he got on the subject. So yeah, I, I kind of always practice outside the institutions. Anyhow, um, let's see, uh, we were talking about institutions, um, institutions. What was the question? Maybe we should we should go back to the question because I always feel like I wander so far away from these questions. Well, I think what your your reflections are very interesting. I was talking about um, asking you if you reflect on the difference between American Zen as it's popularly presented experience than yeah. compared to the Zen that you're talking about. Uh, you were talking yeah, about yeah. that was that was kind of interesting to me because when I first started getting into Zen, this was a period when. You know, it's it's the early '80s, and especially people in the punk rock scene. You, you we'd kind of gone, oh, the, there's these '60s hippies and their Eastern religions. Blah. You know, that was the kind of general attitude towards it, and the the culture overall had kind of moved away from that. It, they, you know, in the late '60s and into the middle of the '70s, there was a huge interest in it, and by the '80s, by the early '80s, it was kind of gone. So I felt it was sort of a lonely position to be interested in this stuff. And then I moved to Japan and, you know, pre-internet days, getting information about what was going on back home was a lot slower, but I would see things, you know, people bring over a magazine or something and I'd, I'd go, hey, this stuff is getting popular over there. Somebody would send me a, a VHS tape with the Simpsons episode and Lisa Simpson is talking about being a Buddhist. I'm going, what's going on? This stuff that uh, stuff is getting popular in America, but um when I came back after I lived in Japan for 11 years and started for the first time going because I had a book out by then and people were inviting me. So I started going to places like the San Francisco Zen Center and some of these big Zen institutions that existed in America. I'm going, this is, I don't know if this is really what I was studying. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, I mean, it was, there were certain, certainly uh, it was along the similar lines, but yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of politics involved and a lot of um, the, the things an institution has to do in order to keep its membership happy often seem to be more important to the institutions than the actual practice and, and what was what I thought was uh, important to it. Uh, and, and of course, you had this whole culture of the Buddhist magazines and stuff, which I had, uh, which, which, which have this big influence on, uh, you know, now they're online things, too. And they had this big influence on what people thought Buddhism was. And I had not paid attention to any of that. And when I would look at it, I'd go, Oh, is this what they think they think Buddhism is? Um, 
And then, of course, the whole the whole cultural thing. I, one of the uh, books I wrote was called Zen Wrapped in Karma, Dipped in Chocolate. And that was the title came from one of the times when I was back home visiting uh, relatives in America. I, I turn on the TV and there's this uh, commercial, I think it was for Yoplate yogurt. And uh, one of the characters in the commercial is eating this this yogurt and going it's like zen wrapped in karma dipped in chocolate and i'm like oh this is what they think uh zen is and so so yeah so there's there's this this whole this whole thing that i feel in in the new book in the other side of nothing i realized that in writing it i kept referring to the buddhists as if those guys over there, <laughs> the Buddhists, uh, without including myself in it necessarily. And I, I was doing this without really consciously thinking about it and, and actually ended up writing about that in, in the book as I'm doing it. Like, why am I calling them the Buddhists? And, and part of the reason is, is because I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm part of the Buddhists. Uh, I, I'm definitely an ordained <clears throat> Buddhist monk, you know, what, whatever that means. Um, but I don't know if I'm part of the Buddhists in uh, in inverted commas, as they say, uh, with uh, uh, you know, as as they exist now, because because it does it does seem to be a matter of faith and belief, and and it's not. I was going to mention the politics. It's not as even even as if I disagree with all their their politics. Sometimes it's even they even take positions that I'm like perfectly agreeable with but I'm like that's not the important thing that's not what we're that's not what we're studying here that's that's for the people who are into politics to 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 work on you know <clears throat> we're actually working on something a little different I think something that's a little a little a lot deeper than than politics and and why are you spending so much time um working on that I don't I don't get it that's not what what this institution was supposedly founded to do you know, it's it's uh, it's very easy to find people who are interested in in political causes, but very hard to find people who are actually willing to sit down and meditate. And I think if as as a Zen institution, what you should be doing is is you know teaching people to meditate and let them let them deal with their politics elsewhere, because the meditation itself is a very uh, big commitment that. Uh, that that I think is it should be the overriding concern. Now I'm going to get in trouble, but it's okay. <laughs> well, perhaps we could talk a bit about that then, meditation. You know, there's something that's puzzled me a bit about your biography, mm. which is that right away from your first exposure to Zazen, which, as you said, was through your first teacher, Tim McCarthy, at uh, Kent State University, Ohio, yeah. you've practiced it more or less every day. You had a little bit of a stop and start, you said, in that first mm. year. Um, but pretty much since then, you've practiced it each day. Zazen, of course, being the Zen, one of the Zen forms of meditation. Yeah. Maybe you'll mention what that is. But, uh, you know, a lot of people are propelled into spiritual search uh, through, you know, or spiritual practice, if you want to put, put it that way, through all, all kinds of reasons, right? S mm -hmm. some, some suffering, um, uh, drug experiences is extreme, yeah. extremely common, a mental breakdown, you know. Uh, this, that, and the other, some sort of profound experience of spirituality at a young age, or th this sort of stuff, or an mm -hmm. inspiring mentor, and so on. There's lots of things. I'm curious, why do you think? But one thing that I will say is that many people 
um, find this idea of regular daily practice extremely elusive. In fact, you've just mentioned that. I find it very yeah. difficult to do that, despite being passionately interested in in the religion itself. So, what's going on there? Why why did you? What was it about zazen that that captured you like that? And what was behind your regularly doing it uh, for so many years when so many other people struggle to do that? Yeah, yeah, good question. Well, I, it's, it's, um, it's weird to me because I, I, there, I was at Tassajara, which is a Zen monastery a number of years ago. And there was this, I was working with this um, young woman who was, uh, we were doing some kind of project together and she was 19 years old and i'm and i started saying what's a 19 year old girl doing at at a, at a zen meditation center and then as, as the words are coming out of my mouth i'm thinking i was a 19 year old who was interested in zen meditation but even even having been that myself i think wow that's really weird so when i think about my 19 year old self being uh, you know committed to to meditation practice i'm going well that's that's strange um and well, you know, there was a, there were a lot of things going on. I mean, there was that whole Cold War thing, and then and uh, in my family, there's this terrible uh, genetic condition. I think I, I put it in several of my books, and I guess I probably put it in this one that I was aware of that that could. Uh, that was another reason I didn't expect to. to you know, I'm I'm in my fifties now, and I didn't expect to get this old when I was in my you know twenties and teens. I expect it to be to be gone by then, either through the the genetic condition that runs in my family or through uh, the, the you know the world getting blown up. Um, so there was a kind of urgency uh, to to find out what was what this life was, and and I had I, I remember I, I the drug experiences you mentioned I. I uh, a lot of people are propelled into that. And I had read that uh, sort of literature. I had Be Here Now and some other books by John Lilly and stuff that I was reading around the same time as I was getting into Zen and managed to score some LSD from the uh, the singer of Zero Defects had a friend who, who could get some. And uh, that's a punk band I was in. And uh, and tried it and and had some kind of eye opening experiences. But I could also see that this is this is a dead end. You can't you can't. Uh, you can't find it this way. This is, you know, you can't. The, the, this, this will only take you so far in that in that quest. Um, and and, uh, and I'd seen other people get burnt out trying to to uh, trying to get there through uh, through using these these substances. Uh, so so I had that in my in my background probably before I sat zazen or you know around the same time as I started. It's hard to tell. It's hard for me to remember exactly the timeline, but um, I just thought, well, this this makes sense. It made logical sense to me that if if what I wanted to discover was the the actual nature of this place I'm living in and this person I am, then sitting quietly by myself without distractions um, seemed like a good way to do that. You know, it seemed like, well, how are you gonna how are you gonna discover it otherwise? You you just have to you just have to be you have to immerse yourself in it as as much as possible, and and this made sense and. The thing about the zazen practice, though, is it, it, you know I, I came into it expecting bells and whistles, and you know uh, 
I expected something to happen. <laughs> you know, there's this fav there's this uh, cartoon that I've shared myself online. Uh, uh, Gayan Wilson, who's a who's an interesting cartoonist, came out with it, and it's a bunch of uh, monks sitting around meditating, and the older one is saying to the younger one, "Nothing happens next. This is it." <laughs> you know, and that's exactly that's exactly what uh, what zazen is like. You know, you're like waiting for the thing that happens next. Nothing happens next. Um, but I, I was lucky enough to have a teacher who kind of, uh, who was able to kind of navigate that, you know, like, well, nothing happens. Well, where, where's the, where's the enlightenment? And Dogen's position was, this is the enlightenment. You're going, well, this is, you know, how do I, how do I understand that? Um, but the, the thing I noticed in the midst of, sorry, I'm picking up an Allen wrench. Anyway, the thing I noticed um, that, uh, was when I stopped. You mentioned I, I stopped and started, and and I would do this zazen practice, hoping for something to happen, even though my teacher said nothing will happen, and then get frustrated with it and go, well, okay, I'm done with that, and move on to something else in my life. And every time I would do that, and it happened several times over the course of probably a, a, a few years, every time I would stop doing zazen, I would notice the difference, but it would, because I was dumb, it would take me a while to notice that the difference was I wasn't doing zazen. So, so I'd just be like the, the noise in my head would get, you know, louder and I'd start getting more irritable and, and, uh, you know, having various difficulties and I'd be going, well, what am I drinking too much coffee? Am I, you know, not exercising enough or whatever? I don't know, you know, just trying to come up with reasons and then going, oh, I stopped doing zazen every day. Well, I guess I better start doing it again if I want to, if, if I want this to, to get a little better. I think somebody actually, was it 10% better? So somebody came out with a book I haven't read, but people keep telling me about it, um, where this guy discovered meditation and his, his assessment was it made things 10% better, but that was really important, you know? And, and I can understand that. That's kind of the way I, I felt about it. It made things, it made things better. It didn't uh, answer all the, the questions or, or give me tremendous experiences or anything that was uh, at least initially resembled the LSD experiences, but it made life uh, easier to deal with. And so I just kind of kept up on it. And I, I almost resigned myself to being like, well, I'm just going to have to keep doing this. You know, it wasn't, it, it was no longer this attractive exotic thing that I was, you know, getting into. It was like, I always compare it uh, to brushing my teeth. I, I realized it was, it was like that. It was, it was kind of that level. You know, you don't, you don't think I'm preventing gum disease and, you know, whatever, as you're brushing your teeth or you don't expect you know, something to happen, you just do it. And, and you do it not only for yourself to feel better, you know, I just brushed my teeth before we started this interview. Um, uh, you do it for yourself to feel better, but you also uh, do it for other people, you know, because it's, uh, it, I've talked to people who don't brush their teeth. It's not a pleasant thing to do sometimes, you know, so, uh, so you, you do it so you're not, you're not putting out this ugly smell to everybody. And it's a similar way to, to Zazen. That, that was the way I practiced it. So I wasn't putting out all this, you know, terrible, you know, bad vibes or whatever uh, to people all the time. And it wasn't until later that anything sort of 
mystical or any of that sort of stuff that you read about in the Zen literature happened. I had to kind of do it as just a daily slog for, for years before anything like that ever, uh, ever became a factor in my practice. And, and I think that's, I think that's a, that's a, that's the place where a lot of people just kind of leave off. You know, they, they, uh, I'm, I'm always reading books or seeing things where people are saying, yeah, I, I couldn't get anywhere in meditation. Like, well, that's kind of the point. <laughs> you don't get anywhere. But if you, if you can do it without insisting on getting anywhere, the irony is that's when you get somewhere, you know, in, in quotes. <laughs> I'm wondering, you've been meditating now, you said you're in your fifties. Yeah. You've been meditating now 30 years, I suppose. Um, or Maybe more, more yeah. <laughs> yeah. By now. And so if you were to stop, how much do you, th can you, are there any gains that would be locked in? And I know that I, by saying gains that are locked in, um, of course I'm saying it wrong, but that's all right. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, but but um, you're talking about this sort of backsliding that can occur when you're not meditating, you think, Mm -hmm. at least in the early days when you were when you were more on and off in the very you know first year or so you say oh am i drinking coffee i'm feeling strange oh it's because i'm not doing my zazen what about now after decades of practice how much do you think would be you know, could you ride the momentum of that or is there some deeper transformation that's occurred and how much do you think the daily the daily discipline of zazen is contributing to your experience right now well, I mean, I feel like the best metaphor to answer a question like that is like exercise. You know, if you if you if you get into an exercise program and you you really keep up with it, then then you kind of keep up with the you know the the benefits of it. And if you stop doing it, you you lose the benefits. You you, you certainly keep something of it. You might keep a, a kind of a discipline or 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 something like that, but you you lose the benefits of the the, the daily exercise because you're not exercising daily that that kind of happens I, I suppose you know there's certain there's certain things you know uh, there are certain experiences I've had in and around Zen that have turned my way of looking at the world upside down you know as it were and and I you know the I guess uh the kids these days say unsee you know it's like something you can't unsee you know um Sorry, I like to sound like an old guy sometimes. Anyway, you know, it's it it. They, I've seen things that I can't unsee as part of my practice, and I can't I can't go back uh, to to looking at the world the way I used to look at it. That that certainly wouldn't be lost. But then the daily practice is a kind of I mean, there's a there's a factor of discipline in there, and I do notice that there there are times when I just uh, can't do it you know there because uh, i travel a lot I, I go to europe every year for example and, and often that that period of, of a few days when i'm uh, you know when i first get there and when i'm getting ready to leave i i i'm not doing the zazen and i i notice that it just it just shifts and i suppose the shift is is subtle but uh, but things aren't right until i until i get back to doing it um yeah i suppose you you there are people who who just they they have the experience that they've been looking for this this kind of a common story among meditators and then they figure they're they're done with meditation and those are the cases that always 
whenever I see a case of somebody who's gone really wrong with their practice, it's often that. It's often somebody who who had a an experience, you know, some kind of a, a awakening moment or whatever they'll they'll call it, and uh, they imagine that that everything's fixed now and that they no longer have to do the, the practice that got them there. And then, and then that's, that's where, where it often goes bad. You know, there's this kind of, um, because it, one, one thing that's interesting about the ego, and I don't even like to use the word ego because it's so overused, but, but I'll use it anyway. The, the ego can, that you kind of are trying to work on with a, with a meditation practice, it can latch on to anything to aggrandize itself, including the dissolution of the ego <clears throat> can become something that the ego puts in its little basket and goes, I've dissolved the ego, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's really the ego talking about how it's dissolved itself. And, uh, and, and uh, you see that a lot. I see that a lot. And, and that's really a fascinating factor, you know, kind of going, oh, you're, you're, you don't realize you're just doing that. You're just grabbing on to your, to your spiritual experience as a way to, you know, bloat yourself up and bloat your self-image up and, 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 and seem special. And, and so many people do that. Uh, I think I've done that myself uh, from time to time, but uh, that's where it's good to have a teacher because teachers are, are always, uh, my teachers have always been great at uh, cutting me down when I get into that, <laughs> that area. Can you recall an example of one of your teachers cutting you down in such a situation? Well, yeah, there's something, I, I don't know if this is in uh, other side of nothing. I certainly put it in, in other books, but there was an experience where I had, there was a time when I was living in Japan and getting really, even though I was still working at the Japanese monster company, I was, I, my life was kind of really dedicated to meditation, even though I was kind of still in the working world. And at, at that point, I started to have some experiences and, and one of them was, uh, was pretty profound. It, uh, it's sort of, I'll try to give you the short version. It, it it happened while I was asleep, but it wasn't a dream. This is one of the, the weird things that sometimes happens in meditators. It was, it was this, as if I'd, I'd become awake in the dream state and then had, you know, all this, um, it was more, I'd had lucid dreams before, but this went way beyond uh, lucid dreams. And it was sort of, I, I, I could feel myself expanding into the entire universe and it was this huge, thing that happened and I and I woke up in the morning for the first few moments not even being able to get my orientation back as a human in a body you know I'm like what where did this come from you know and then you know I kind of got it got it back and I was very excited the next day about this uh, what had happened so uh, I couldn't uh, I couldn't I was still working. I couldn't arrange to meet Nishijima Roshi and go go talk to him personally. But he had email by then, you know. And email was was a relatively new thing. Nishijima was pretty old, but he was kind of excited by his email, you know, his ability to talk to people with email. So I wrote him this email explaining this whole this whole uh, profound situation, and and he usually didn't answer my emails quickly but this one he came he came back within like a few minutes of, of me hitting send on this one um 
where he said, you work in a company that makes cartoons, which I didn't, <laughs> but he was kind of, he was confused about what, what the company I worked for made, but you know, the stuff we made was very cartoonish. So he was right in that sense. You work for a company that makes cartoons, you need to be more realistic. Uh, and I'm just going, well, I've just explained to you the profound experience of the, of the, of merging with the universe. Isn't this what we're doing here in this Zen tradition? And you're calling it cartoonish and saying, I need to be more realistic. Well, you know, F you. And I got <laughs> kind of angry at the time, but I had to, I had to kind of stop and take stock. And I'm going, well, if I just experienced oneness with the universe, you know, the mind of God and all this crazy stuff. Why would I care what this, this little old man in Japan thinks about it, you know? And then going, well, I do care what this little old Japanese man thinks about it. You know, he's five foot tall and bald and, you know, I, I, uh, I, and, and so if I care what he thinks about it, that's significant. And, uh, but it was really, it was really hard because, um, you know, I wanted affirmation, you know, I just had this pro really profound experience, or at least in my, in my, and, and I still, when I think about it, I think, well, that, that was, that was a pretty, something that doesn't happen to everybody. Um, but uh, the Zen tradition sort of demands that you stick with whatever's happening now. Uh, and if, if you're not merging with the universe right now, then your memory of having merged with the universe you know, yesterday or 10 years ago or whenever it was, is, is no better than somebody else's memory of, you know, winning the big game in high school or, you know, the things people, ordinary people just sort of brag about. It's, it's just one of those things. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not what's going on right here. And that's what our practice is, is about. It's about what's going on in this very moment. And, and so having, having a teacher really helped at that moment because this is another thing I've seen people go wrong they'll have these kind of experiences without a teacher without somebody to kind of help them frame it or, or sometimes even with a bad teacher who kind of helps them frame it in, in a in a in the wrong way and then you can kind of go off the deep end with it and I was lucky that that I had an experience that could have sent me off the deep end but I had a teacher who who immediately kind of pulled me back from that precipice, even though at the time it was, you know, I, I kind of say it now and it just like, well, just it had an email exchange with somebody. But at the, at the moment it happened, it was like, you know, shattering my whole world because I thought, you know, I had had the experience. And, uh, and here was my teacher saying, you know, comparing it to cartoons. <laughs> I'm going, what? I, I once heard somebody say that, uh, that, that one of the a great Zen axiom is uh, when dealing with a Zen teacher is whatever you've experienced, that's not it. Yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. Whatever you the... think, that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, even if it's right. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, that that's exactly it. I, I, I like the way you put it. Even if it's right, it's wrong. <laughs> but uh, Nishijima Roshi didn't always uh, respond in quite that way. When you had your taste of awakening, as you put it, on the bridge. Yeah. Um, soon afterwards, he actually wanted to give you Dharma transmission when you after you re reported that to him. Can you say, I know you've told that story many times. Can you say something about that experience on the bridge? And, and what do you think about that 
prompted him to um, invite you to, for Dharma transmission. And he majored your Dharma heir, actually. And that's not an insignificant thing. That's yeah. quite significant. Yeah, that that was uh, that, and, and 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 totally unexpected. Yeah, well, I mean, I can just uh, tell you, I because uh, I I worked at this company, the Japanese monster movie company, and they were kind of situated uh, a little bit far from the the nearest train station. So I'd always take this kind of twenty minute walk from the train station to work. And one of the things that that uh, I did every day was cross this little, it was it was a car bridge. It's something you don't, well, you might find them in the UK. You don't find them in America. These tiny, tiny bridges that are just, uh, you know, just go over a, a stream or something and, and they can carry two cars. But I, I hardly ever noticed that bridge. And there was a, there was just this, um, I stepped onto the bridge and something happened. The whole, the whole world kind of um, changed. Uh, and by the time I was on the other side of the bridge, which is only, you know, I don't know, 30 feet long or something, it, it the, the experience was over. Um, but it, it completely uh, transformed the way I, I see life. I couldn't, I couldn't see things uh, any, I couldn't, the way I had before. And um, the nature of the experience, I, I've tried in, in a few books to explain it, but it's really, it's, it's really difficult uh, to to explain, but it was a it, it it was it was the experience of of being everywhere all at once, and it was completely uh, different from the experience that I just recounted uh, before. In that there was nothing there was nothing extraordinary about it. It was the most extraordinary thing I I could have possibly imagined, and yet my experience of it was like oh that's the way things are. And, and I know that uh, that I continued my walk to work, sat down at my desk and just started doing, you know, answering the, the emails from the, the branch office in Los Angeles or something. That's what I normally did uh, every morning. I think it, I don't think it was even emails at that time, it might have been faxes. But anyway, um, whatever it was, I just did um, the the uh, the thing that I do every day and it was fine but everything everything had profoundly changed uh, and I don't remember the, the, I don't remember any moment when I sat down with Nishijima Roshi and and said this happened to me uh, and here's here's what it was but um, the relationship we had changed and the conversations we had changed and there and there was there was something going on where where where, where we suddenly kind of meshed there but i still didn't think of it as because i'd read stories about people getting dharma transmission and all this stuff and i knew enough to know okay this is one of those experiences but i never thought of myself as the kind of person who would Dharma transmission is supposed you know, supposedly goes back to this moment, probably apocryphal, that happened in the Buddha's life, in which he recognized his student Mahakashapa as being his equal, and they they did a little thing, and then when Buddha died, Mahakashapa was the the head of the Buddhist order. Then Mahakashapa passed this thing on to to. Ananda, I don't know, but there's a whole story of, of who he passed it on to, and there's this whole idea of this, of this, this something that gets transmitted from teacher to student, uh, 
and has been going on since the Buddhist time. And that's what Dharma transmission is supposed to be. Your, your teacher supposedly has this understanding and confirms that, that the student has also this understanding. And then the student is, is expected to go and teach it. And I never thought of myself as somebody who would do that. So when he said he wanted to give me Dharma transmission, my first instinct was to, to try to find a way out of it. <laughs> you know, like to go, uh, thanks, but no thanks. I knew it was this honor, you know, this thing that he was bestowing upon me that was important. But the only, um, what changed my mind about that was because I was living in Japan and I went back to visit the US and I happened to go see uh, Tim. I made arrangements to go see Tim because he wouldn't have been normally one of the people I, I went to see because he lived, and my family lived one place and Tim lived in another. But I made arrangements to go see him and I told him the story and about um, what, how Nishijima Roshi had, had offered me Dharma transmission. And he said, uh, he said, there's a whole lot of, I'll try not to work blue on your channel. Uh, oh, good, go for it. Oh, assholes, well, he said, yeah. he, he literally said asshole. He said, there's a whole lot of assholes out there with Dharma transmissions, transmission and you'd be better than those guys. And when he put when he framed it like that, I thought, well, if all I have to do is be better than than the assholes, then I, then I can do it. If you frame it as you are now the heir of the Buddhist tradition, you know, this uh, passed down from Buddha to disciple for two thousand five hundred years, then I'm going to have to to refuse. But if you say, okay, you can be better than the the assholes who've who've also done this ceremony, then I can do that. So I came back to Japan and I said, okay, let's, let's, let's do this ceremony you want to do. But, uh, but yeah, it all, it, but the, the direct connection between that experience and the Dharma transmission, it was never like I said to Nishijima Roshi, this happened to me on a bridge. And he said, oh, my son, you have seen the light. Uh, I will now confer upon you uh, this, this, you know, this thing. <laughs> um, it wasn't like that. But our relationship changed, and and uh, I later asked him, "Why did you give me Dharma transmission?" Because I, I once I was expected to teach, I thought, "Well, I'm 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 not him, you know. I'm not I'm not doing it the way he did it. I'm not saying it the way he said it." And he he said, uh, "I did it because you you understand me completely." And when he said "me," I think when he said "me," he wasn't referring to, you know, Kazuo Nishijima. That was his his birth name, you know, who'd grown up in Yokohama and uh, you know worked for a cosmetic company. He was talking about you know something something bigger uh, in that me. You understand me? There's there's this sort of universal me that he thought I understood. I don't know if he was right, but <laughs> he, he certainly seemed to think so. So I said, oh, okay, I'll do this thing. You know, you bring up Tim McCarthy there, and if if I recall correctly. Um, he came through the San Francisco Zen Center, or his teacher did, or something like this. Am I right about that? Was Tim connected to that um, center? Uh, yeah, not not um, directly, but Coben, uh, his teacher, he was one of the guys that Shunryu Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi, had started the San Francisco Center Zen Center, and he brought Coben over to help him uh, train people because Coben happened to be very uh, good at training people for ceremonial stuff even though Coben himself kind of rejected <clears throat> ceremonies it's kind of this weird irony that he was really good at it 
but he really he he also was not a guy who really believed it was all that important. But he he came over to do that, and I I think Tim met Coben when Coben was still a part of the San Francisco Zen Center. But pretty shortly after that, uh, Coben left it and started his own thing, and Tim uh, followed with him. So I don't. I, I, Tim was at the San Francisco Zen Center a very short time. Mm. The um, I read that book, Shoes Outside the Door. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, about the San Francisco Zen Center and uh, Richard Richard Baker Roshi and so on, and yeah. uh, that one of the interesting themes there is the um, the Dharma transmission mm -hmm. um, wars that sort of occurred. Who's who's <laughs> got it? How do you get it? This this sort of thing. What yeah. what, what did Roshi mean and so on? How do you relate to? Dharma, you talked, you're talking about how you related to it then. How do you relate to it now? Is it something that f figures in your thinking much? Well, yeah, I do think about it a lot. And I, I don't know what it means. I tend to downplay it a bit um, because I think uh, it gets over. What's the opposite of downplay? Upplayed. You know, it gets, it gets really uh, played up. I guess that's a phrase in English, right? Um, a lot and and with the San Francisco Zen Center, you know, you had this figure of of Suzuki Roshi who was already famous by then, and and uh, so people kind of uh, wanted his thing and wanted to be his heir, and so him giving it to uh, Richard Baker was a big deal uh, and very public and made Richard Baker very powerful because there was this institution around it by then. There was a San Francisco Zen Center with the Tassajara Monastery in Green Gulch. And I think they had a restaurant then. I think they still have a restaurant. Um, you know, a lot of things in a bakery and there was all this, there was, there was money and power involved. And so Richard Baker didn't just inherit the Dharma, he inherited a, control if he didn't actually get um, cash, but uh, he, he, he inherited control over all that, that, that big institutional um, power. And, uh, and there were a lot of people who were jealous of it. And even in an ordinary uh, Zen transmission, uh, there's, there's going to be issues of jealousy and stuff. And that goes back a long time. There's a story of how um, Weike, I think Weike, got his Dharma transmission and was supposed to keep it secret. He's one of the ancient masters uh, because the, uh, the, his uh, other students would be jealous of it. And um, so this, this happens uh, a lot. And I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do about it. I've, I've tried to stay away from the institutional side. You mentioned dissolving the uh, Dogen Sangha International was the thing that <clears throat> Nishijima Roshi made me the uh, head of, although, it was much less than what the San Francisco Zen Center was. There was no no property or anything else involved in, in inheriting that. It was just a name of this group. And I had so much trouble with it initially after Nishijima Roshi died that I just dissolved it. But then this, this time when uh, the other side of nothing came out and needed to have something on the back describing me, I, I, I said, well, just put head of Dogen Sangha International. So it's actually on the back of the book. So so in a sense, I guess I've revived it, but I haven't done anything else with it other than putting it on the back of the book, <laughs> you know? So I guess, I guess it's back. I guess I've undissolved it, but there's, there's still nobody in it. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a bit phony, but uh, it was just something to put on the book to make it contrast from all the other bios that, that have been on the backs of other books. Um, and uh, 
but I, I the, when it it shouldn't be about institutional power and 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 all of this stuff, but it, that often gets mixed up in it, and and that's a struggle for me personally because I there's a, the the three treasures are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You know, the Buddha is the the Buddha, the Dharma is the teaching, and the Sangha is the the group. And I always had trouble with the third one. You know, the the Sangha. I I, I always felt like, well, you know, um, I was always a part from them like uh, I, I was I, when I wrote hardcore Zen I didn't expect hardcore Zen to be a success one of the reasons was because I had never up until you know several months to a year after that book was published I had never met even one person uh, who was into interested in both Zen or Buddhism of any kind and punk rock and the book is all about you know punk rock and and uh, and Buddhism and and I never you know in all the sanghas I've been part of I'd never met a single person who 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 shared my interest in in that stuff uh, so and and now I have you know now I realize there's a there's a bunch of people uh, who 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 noticed that connection and that's kind of interesting because I thought I was the only one, but I always felt I mean that was one of many reasons I always felt like you know I I, I hang around with these these guys who uh, usually it's that's one of the unfortunate tendencies is is Zen is it tends to be male heavy you know male male dominated although that's changing a little bit. But I hang around these guys, you know, who, who like to meditate, but I'm never really one of these guys, you know. And then when you put me in charge of those guys, when my teacher put me in charge of those guys, I'm like, ah, I can't even relate to these people, you know. Um, I don't know what, they, what they're interested in. So I, I had to go do something else. But, but it, it was often taught as an institutional thing. And that breeds this kind of group think where everybody has to kind of, you know, we have to put out our mission statement and our, our uh, that's constantly a, a trouble for me when, uh, when, when a group I'm part of is like, well, we've got to issue a statement about, I mean, why do we have to issue a statement? <laughs> you know, we don't want, as if we all think the same thing about, you know, and we're going to take a position on, you know, whatever happened in the world and I'm like you know why do we have to take a position about whatever happened in the world just just let whatever happened in the world happen and and people think about it whatever they think about it we don't have to put out a a statement that's that you know that's one of many things that these institutions do that I just can't wrap my head around I'm like you know because they're doing it all the time and it's obviously incredibly important to them to put out their statement about whatever you know whatever is going on and I'm like I don't want to make a statement <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, you know, it happened and, uh, and I might have an opinion about it, but I, I don't want <clears throat> to issue a statement. Uh, so, so the, 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 the things institutions do just, I, I don't understand. Uh, but I do think there's a value. This is one of the things I think is, it may not be Buddha's unique innovation. There may have been other people who, who did it, but one of the things that I think is very interesting about the Buddha is uh, if you go back to his life story, he had this profound spiritual awakening while sitting on under under a tree on a rock, you know, and he had this moment of awakening that's very famous. And the first thing he did reportedly after this happened is he thought to himself, well, nobody's going to understand this. I'll just kind of 
you know, it's nice that this happened to me, but I'm, you know, nobody's, nobody's going to get this. So I'm not even going to try. And the legend has it that the god Indra comes to him and, and uh, begs him to, to teach the world. And I, I don't really um, think that's literally true, but at, at some point he had this inkling that, all right, I, even though I think this is impossible to teach, I'm going to, I'm going to try, you know, so he, he actually went out and tried to teach people uh, uh, this, uh, this awakening he'd had, um, which I imagine other people that had similar awakenings and probably didn't try to teach anybody. They probably just said, yeah, nobody's going to get this. I, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to try because it's just a, a waste of effort. But he tried, you know, and, and I think that's, and he dedicated his life to trying to, to teach it. And um, whether he was successful at it or not is one of these open questions among, among Buddhists that uh, the Buddhists uh, kind of like to debate whether he actually did uh, succeed in transmitting it. The Zen tradition, the traditional uh, way of, of framing it is that he did successfully transmit it to Mahakashapa, but maybe the others didn't quite get it, but there's, the, 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 there's been this secret, you know, almost semi-secret lineage of people who did get it. And, uh, and that's what the Zen tradition supposedly is. And that's what Dharma transmission supposedly links you to. Although, you know, I, I kind of take all that with a grain of salt, but that's, that's kind of the way they frame it. That, that, uh, whereas other Buddhist, uh, lineages think of it as as he was successful and he was able to transmit it to many people and we're we're among this these many people who've gotten it whereas the zen tradition has it that he, he wasn't successful at transmitting it to most of the people that he talked to but there were a few who got it and uh and that's and that's what we represent you know it sounds terribly arrogant when you, when you put it like that but that's kind of that's kind of the way that's that's at least the the story that we tell ourselves in the Zen tradition. Although, like I say, I, I don't know if I, I believe that story. I just, I know it's, I know the story. <laughs> That's very interesting indeed. Do you have any, among your, the people you know, um, do you have any promising candidates for <laughs> Dharma transmission? Among the I, people I, like people I would give Dharma transmission to, I, I, I have. I know you have a funny relationship with, this idea of having students yeah uh, and so on but you have the angel city zen center or or is that still going i'm not sure but well that that's still going but i kind of walked away from it because i thought oh this is this seems to be going in a direction i i don't want to go anymore and uh, and so i was like you guys just carry on i'll i'll be over here <laughs> but i mean whatever you call them i don't know do you consider to yourself to have students uh, the reason i'm i know that you know you've made videos about that you've talked about that idea so um if i hadn't seen those videos i would i would ask you rather more naively maybe that's the quicker way of doing it i'd say something like among your students uh do you, do you have any promising candidates or have you given dharma transmission to anybody is it something you i haven't uh i i don't know i don't know what would prompt me to, to do that. I, I have a sense of what prompted Nishijima Roshi to do that because he was, he was kind of known among people who know those things as being a guy who gave Dharma transmission easier than others, you know? So, so, you know, that makes my transmission maybe less special because there's like 
I think 30 some people that he gave Dharma transmission to. I, I figured it out one time. I, I, I think it was over 20, but maybe it wasn't quite 30. But he'd given, you know, and some, and some people um, don't give uh, Dharma transmission to anybody. You know, there's a, there's a guy who just uh, passed away, who was rather famous, and without giving, without making any Dharma heirs at all, and that caused a lot of problems for his, uh, the institution that he'd set up, because you know, nobody's a clear head of it. Are you so, talking about Sasaki Roshi? Yeah, yeah, Sasaki Roshi, yeah, didn't, didn't make any Dharma heirs. So, um, so uh, and and I'm living right now just a, a few minutes drive from his uh, his place at Mount Baldy and um, and somebody was there recently said oh it's kind of falling apart because no nobody's really because uh, because of that that's part of the the problem is, is he didn't make a clear um, air whereas Nishima Roshi did you know uh, on a number of occasions make a clear Dharma airs uh, and and I think about that in terms of myself what would to me it would have to be I guess this may be the way everybody does it, probably to a certain extent, it would have to be something that was similar to what happened to me. And, uh, and I haven't, uh, I haven't found anybody who seems to, who seems to dug that deeply into it. You know, there's, there's a lot of people around, and it's kind of frustrating, there's a lot of people around who want it, you know, who, uh, who, who see it as a thing they want to get. And, uh, and who will, I've, I've had people do all sorts of weird, you know, thinking they can flatter me into it or even buy their way into it. There was a guy a few years ago who was uh, literally trying to buy his way into a, a Dharma transmission from me, which, uh, which I was just like, okay, uh, <laughs> you're not going to get it that way. <laughs> um, uh, and, and he was apparently really rich. I probably could be rich right now. <laughs> Uh, sometimes I think about uh, things like that and go on. Anyway, um, but um, but yeah, there's a rich guy wanted to, to to buy Dharma transmission from me, and there's there's a lot of that going on, and and that's uh, that would uh, you know I'm not going to do that because that just that just ruins the whole the whole thing for for everybody I I think um, yeah and and I haven't really seen anybody who's who's uh, stuck you know really stuck with it and and really kind of wanted to, to to penetrate in you know to to get to the the core of things you know which is sort of disappointing you know um but um, you know maybe one of these days it'll happen i don't know one last question about nishijima roshi um sure before we talk about the book uh in the time we've got left you write because Nishijima Roshi wanted to teach Zen to non-Japanese people, he taught himself English by buying a set of instructional tapes and diligently following every lesson. He even considered moving to the United States, as several other Japanese Zen teachers had done, although ultimately he decided against it. So uh, this is the, maybe a little wild, wild card question. What do you think would have happened if he'd moved to the States? With his personality and his, his style, how do you think that would have gone down and if we're talking about alternate history here. Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I've kind of wondered about that, uh, whether he would have been able, because he made a few trips 
and this is before I met him. So I wasn't around, not, not long before I met him, I guess, if I think about the timeline, but he did make a few trips to the US and, and do a few appearances here and there when he was thinking, and I didn't even realize this until kind of recently that he was actually considering moving over uh, to the US. And, and uh, I don't know, uh, I don't, you know, he wasn't into institutions, but, but he did, you know, he did have this dream of Dogen Sangha International and of teaching it to outside of Japan because he, and he's not alone in this. There's a lot of Japanese Zen teachers. Suzuki Roshi was, was one of them. Uh, one of the reasons he founded the San Francisco Zen Center is he'd noticed the same thing Nishijima Roshi had noticed that, that it was kind of dead in Japan. You know, I mean, there are there are still, of course, sincere students in in Japan, and and you know, they they crop up every once in a while. But it, it's become a kind of dead institution. It's become that guild of funeral directors. And he thought that maybe uh, the West was was ripe for an awakening of of this stuff, and and uh, that that the students that he found there were more sincere than what you would find in in Japan. So you know, he he probably would have. Uh, I, I imagine he probably would have been along the same lines as what Koben Chino Roshi was doing, which was Koben never became famous. But then again, Koben's uh, one of Koben's students was Steve Jobs, you know, of, of Apple. Uh, so uh, so now if you Google Koben Chino Roshi, uh, all this stuff about Steve Jobs comes up. Um, so he definitely had had an influence, and probably Nishima Roshi would have had a similar sort of influence, but probably in a in a, a way that would have been less visible than, say, the San Francisco Zen Center or something like that. Um, whether I'd have joined it or not, I don't know. You know, I, I, I sometimes think about that. Would I have been interested in him in that context rather than? Because I kind of went to him initially because um, mostly because the time that he offered his classes was convenient. You know, I think about that now and I think how mundane that was. But there was somebody else offering classes that were, that were really early in the morning on weekdays. And he was offering classes at one in the afternoon on Saturdays. I'm like, well, I'm going to go to that guy, the one in the afternoon guy. I'm not going to get up at 4 a.m. to try to, to go to this other thing. Um, so, uh, so, um, yeah, it, it was all that kind of context. And I think things happen, you know, I have that kind of, uh, I, I'm one of those people that believes that things happen the way they're supposed to happen, no matter what we do. And so uh, maybe this is just, a lot of things have happened in my life when I think about them, I go, that's weird, you know, uh, running into Tim McCarthy, for example, was really weird, you know, you, you in, in 19... 83 in, in in Ohio there weren't a lot of Zen teachers running around and I just happened to you know literally live right next to one and I think about that like that's that's odd <laughs> so I think things just happen the way they happen and and they kind of have their own trajectory mm. you know your your book the other side of nothing is about ethics but also mm -hmm. about metaphysics yeah and that, that's an interesting link there um, and one of the things about ethics that sometimes said, and you know, one hears people, and you've done this actually, you've made videos about why good teachers go bad and that sort of thing. Um, one of the things that's often said is, uh, one hears a lot said, is to, that one of the, um, should we say, safeguards or feedback mechanisms is to have a teacher, even yeah. if oneself is actually a teacher, even if one yeah. is a teacher oneself. 
So have you ever tried to do that when you came back to the States and you're out of the orbit of Nishijima Roshi? Um, did you ever shop around to see if you could find a senior teacher to kind of relate to in that way? Is that something that, it, that you ever attempted to do? Well, I suppose to a certain extent, Tim is still around. Nishijima Roshi passed away a few years ago, but Tim is, is still around and I... I he, he, he tends to be a hard person to get a hold of, but I do I do communicate with him uh, now and then. So so I still have have him around, um, and and I did. Uh, there there are a few people who were uh, impressive to me. There's a woman named um, Zuiko Redding at a place called the Cedar Rapids Zen Center, and she's unknown, but I think she's a really good Zen teacher out there in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, there's there's a few people here and there who who I do uh, relate to, but I, I kind of feel like, you know, I had my teacher, and my teacher is is uh, is well, the two teachers I had are are who they were, and that's kind of um, that's probably what's meant to be, and I can't jump ship and and find somebody else. You know, it's 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 weird how these these things happen. It's kind of like you're you're. There's, there's probably for all of us, there's a teacher, you know, who's, who's going to be the person and, and encountering that person is kind of a matter of luck often, you know, I don't know, I, I, I suppose it's karma, you know, uh, it's probably more than just luck. And, and I don't think it's something you can, you can make happen, but you can, it's something you can learn to be open enough to recognize when it does happen, but I don't think you can kind of, um, uh, you know, make it happen. Uh, so, so yeah, I never really tried to, to find another teacher. You know, I'm always kind of, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to listen to, to anybody and, uh, and, and see where they're coming from. And, and I think there's a few people out there who, who have a deep sort of understanding, but at the same time, you know, one of the things people ask me to do is recommend other teachers. And, and I, 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 I don't have like a Rolodex of, of teachers I want to recommend. And the other thing is I don't want to, you know, so, so I don't want to send somebody to somebody else who's going to go and annoy <laughs> one of my friends. <laughs> Sometimes I think of it that way. I think, uh, I don't know. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I don't know if that's an answer. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Um, so let's talk a bit about the book. And you know, we're it's been such a fascinating conversation, Brad. And um, we won't have time to do the book justice. But uh, you know, oh. I, I read the other side of nothing, and very, very, I enjoyed it a lot. Very interesting book indeed. Oh, thank and of you. course, yeah. And I have links down below. And one of the things I liked about it, which I don't think we're going to have time to talk about, actually, is you know, you you, you go through this consideration of ethics and. Um, you deal with different ways in which ethics have been framed in yeah. uh, Buddhism and the Four uh, Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, yeah. that sort of thing, and uh, Right View and all that sort of thing. And you give a sort of Dogen spin on mm. a lot of them. And there's a lot of very interesting points you make, uh, counter uh, points, I think, to a lot of the ways that, for example, the Eightfold Noble Path is commonly understood. Mm -hmm. using that Dogen lens and, as you say, bringing out many of Dogen's contradictions and attempting to penetrate them and his very interesting metaphors and references that he makes, yeah. um, which are quite opaque 
at yeah. first glance, at least to the uninitiated, and you un unpack them. And you know, uh, we we won't. I don't think I have time really now to go into that in great depth. But that's something I enjoyed. But oh, I did have a question. You write. I didn't mean to write this book. I wanted to write a book about ethics, specifically Buddhist ethics. But in addition to writing about Buddhist ethics, I ended up writing a lot about the Buddhist ideas about the structure of reality, what some folks call non-duality. So yeah. could you say why a book about ethics? How'd you write about metaphysics? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I just found it was impossible to write about Buddhist ethics without getting in, into those areas because it's all sort of based on that. And it's, it's Buddhist ethics is based on the idea that we are all intimately connected, interconnected. Uh, what's the, there's interdependence is a word that people like a lot. Um, we're all we're all intimately connected. That that it's an illusion that we are separate individuals, you know, uh, and and that we uh, that we have this autonomous we have a little bit of autonomy, but we, we imagine that we have way more than we actually have. That's my, my uh, tentative conclusion to that question is that, uh, is that we have a bit of that, but, uh, but much less than we imagine we have. And so we're, we're all intimately connected. And, and the reason it's the reason to act ethically is in a sense, it's, it's the it's a selfish it's in, in i don't like to use the word selfish because it's such a bad you know has a bad taste but it is the best thing that you can do if you want to have a decent life for yourself is behave ethically and we we live in a society that often doesn't understand that you know that that thinks well you know you can uh, get ahead of the other guy and you know push him aside and you know and uh, you know kind of end up in a in a better position by acting unethically you know and but the the and the buddhist precepts would seem to be a lot of rules to keep you from from doing those things and you go well you know i might i might get ahead if i lie steal and cheat and kill <laughs> you know all these things that are uh, you know considered to be against the buddhist ethics and but they're not put forward as as rules. They're, they're what they're saying is if you if you actually want to have a good life, if you want to be happier, um, act ethically, you know, and and pay attention to to that because you're connected to to everyone. So anything you do to another person, literally, you're doing to yourself because there's nobody else here. You know, you you think there's all these other people here, and that and that we're independent, and that you can you can gain something at the expense of somebody else. But that's an illusion. You can't. Uh, it's it's impossible to do that. Uh, the the best you can do is kind of in the short term. Uh, you can get a little bit ahead, but it, the universe will always come along and and even it out for you, even if you don't want it to even out. It'll it'll flatten everything because that's just it, it all has to kind of settle into the one the one line that it settles into, and and so if you're if you're going to talk in depth, which I tried to do in this book about ethics and their, their reason, you have to get into this. And, and what you get into, what I got into is some, is some of the really mystical, weird sounding stuff that I actually like a lot. I, I've, I've always had a soft spot for that, all that, all that weird talk that Buddhists do, you know, and, and, um, 
but I, I thought it was important to to relate that to just nuts and bolts, uh, real things in the real world, because it's not all all going off into space and and having a an experience of of the universe like the experience I talked to about earlier in the in this podcast. Um, <clears throat> You know those kind of experiences can be valuable too, but what what's really going on is what's going on right here and right here. You're just relating to other people and other things, and trying to do the right thing by them. But it, this is often, you know, it's often very sticky because, like, the the first uh, precept is do not kill, and the the staunchest vegan in the world still has to kill things in order to survive uh so so you know you, you you get it into your head we often get it into our heads that we can we can beat the game we can find this this perfect thing and we're going to find all the rules and and uh and just be perfect people but you're not you know you're not built that way you're built in such a way that you can't survive without uh harming uh, things but you try to uh, you try to lessen the harm that you do and uh and do and do what's right in this in this moment in this situation um so part of part of what Buddhist ethics asked you to do is is you you keep this big picture in mind, but there are times when when you you just have to take care of the situation that's right in front of you, and sometimes that uh, you know requires requires you to be able to act freely uh, without being constricted by a, a set of of hard rules. So you know you you have the rules, but you actually are trying to uh, maintain a certain amount of freedom from those rules, which gets, you know, it's like the contradiction. It's like, it's not aliens. I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. You, you, you end up uh, contradicting the Buddhist ethics, even while trying to uphold them. But, but the reason those precepts are there is because in almost every situation, you're best to, to uh, follow the precepts, hmm. but, but you you also have to be aware that uh, that there are going to be situations in which you're going to have to violate the the letter of the precepts in order to keep the spirit of the precepts and that's you know that's a really tricky one and that's one where you know you can easily go wrong you know people will will think well that means i'm free of all rules and it's like no not quite <laughs> you you know to give people a flavor of of some of the the dogen that you bring in uh, for right view, you quote him as saying, right view as a branch of the path is the inside of the eyes containing the body. And he later says, those who do not put the body into the eyes are not Buddhist ancestors. And in right speech, he says, you quote him as saying, right speech is mastery of the state in which the mouth is hung on the wall. It is mastery of the state in which all mouths are hung on all walls. It is all mouths being hung on all walls. Yeah, he's a weirdo, uh, isn't he? <laughs> what can you what can you say about about the Dogen the Dogen use of these of these metaphors and 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 uh, and other devices that you bring out in the book? Yeah, Dogen is it, Dogen is really interesting. He's because uh, he, he does uh, he he has this side of him where he talks really practically. There are there are sections of Shobo Genzo in which uh, my my favorite is where he tells you how to use the toilet you know and he goes into just all the 
it's it's all based on what medieval Japanese toilets were like, so you can't really apply it precisely to to today. But you know, he goes into this tremendous nitty gritty detail about how to do this incredibly mundane thing that, that we all have to do every day, and. Um, and then he'll go on these flights of uh, like you just quoted, where it's just like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, it's just, you know, the the eyes inside of the body, and and often I, uh, one of the things I've found since I've become a guy who's known to comment on Dogen, and I've read the original texts, and I've tried to 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 get into the scholarly, you know, I wasn't trained in a university or anything, but I had a Nishijima Roshi was very into that. And he, he showed me what the metaphors mean. And he, you know, explains a lot of this stuff. So I can, I can go there, but I, but I often find that, uh, that I'm guessing, you know, and I think we all are guessing when you, when you come across a phrase like that, you're kind of like going, oh, how does that feel? And he's, he's trying to present something for which there are no words. So that whole thing about mouths hung on walls, that's actually a, uh, one of his easier metaphors because um, he kind of clues you into what that means and it just means being silent, you know? So he's bas basically saying right speech is, is knowing when to shut up and not talk at all, <laughs> you know? Um, so uh, so that, one's, that one's fairly easy, although you could get, you could dig deeper into it and find a lot of metaphysical, uh, things, but but he's he's taking a worldview that's that's quite different from the standard worldview. So the the eye, the body being inside the eyes, is is kind of his. I, I think I get what he's referring to, but I'm just as hard pressed as he is to find a, a good way to say that, you know. But <clears throat> if you go through this practice for long enough, you get it. You get a feeling for statements like that where what you thought was you know top is actually bottom and what you thought was inside is actually outside and and so then in a sense you know you think the eyes are inside the body and that they they're just this organ and, and in one sense that's true um, but in another sense um, there's a bigger self that is that is in in which the body the the, the individual self fits into and, and one of the things we're asked to do in this tradition is give up our, our desire to do what the individual wants in order to try to understand what the, the bigger self uh, wants to happen. And often these things are, are at odds and our usual way to deal with it when these things are at, at odds is to defer to the small self and to go, well, uh, I'm not gonna you know, worry about what that wants. I'm gonna do what I want. And, and every time uh, you, you make the decision to do that, it, things are just gonna go wonky because, uh, because the, the bigger self is, is, um, determines <laughs> what, what needs to happen. Um, so you have to kind of give up a lot of, uh, of what you think of as your own, uh, autonomy, I keep using that word, don't I? Um, and, and just kind of do what's necessary, but seeing how to do what's necessary is difficult. And that's one of the reasons we do this practice of zazen. You just, you spend a certain amount of time every day being really quiet, not trying to make anything happen, just 
just existing like like a rock or a plant or something you know you just you just put yourself down and you're just like okay now i'm going to be a, a tree stump here for for the next half hour um and most of the time nothing spectacular happens but it does it does end up providing a kind of insight into um into this bigger you know this bigger something that that is actually what's in charge <laughs> Yeah, this has been so fascinating, and I think we'll have to bring it to an end now out of respect for your time. But, um, you know, one thing that I found very in interesting, perhaps we'll finish with this, is you don't touch on a lot of what you might call our hot button ethical issue, ethical issues. Um, perhaps that's by by design. Yeah. I can see you nodding. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm wondering ab about that, um, but also uh, there is something you mentioned, which I, I was curious if you might expand. You, you write, of course, this is about your time in Kenya. One other thing that was very different between Wadsworth, Ohio and Nairobi, Kenya, was that Wadsworth was made up of mostly white people and Nairobi, mostly black people. Yeah. Not many white Americans had the experience of standing out in a crowd simply because they're white. But I did both when my family lived in Kenya and later when I lived in Japan. I think it changed the way I look at lots of racial issues. Yeah. So I'm curious about that. Um, what was that? What was that change? You know, it's it's hard to tell because uh, uh, I don't know. I can't rewind and and do it another way and see what it would have been like otherwise. But I, I kind of, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's all it's all different. Um, Hmm. It's it's weird, <laughs> you know. It's weird being on the other side of things because you can see aspects of it that, uh, that the, there's even that that sort of um, that sort of person who's the 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 you know they they say woke the woke white person who's trying to to do what they think a, a minority person wants the majority to, to do. And and having been on the other side of that, I can go. That's it's probably you know you're probably your guesses are probably wrong about what what the you know what what those people want you to do or how they want you to be. Mostly, I found that I just wanted people to 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 behave normally around me. You know, I, the the African people that I knew in Africa, the Japanese people I knew in in Japan, I didn't want them to to bend over and and try to treat me in in some special way. I just wanted to be included you know in their in their stuff uh, and and I had close friends in both places who would <clears throat> who would do that who would just forget you know you just you'd forget about that stuff and and uh, and just kind of uh, be be you know just be friends and and not worry about about all that stuff so when I when I see people who were very well-meaning kind of bending over backwards and trying to do the right thing. I, I, I often think, oh yeah, you guys are probably, you know, you're probably not making any points <laughs> by doing that. Um, and, and it gets a little crazy sometimes. So, but then again, you know, it, 
then if you if you point that out you're seen as being wow you're just uh you don't understand but i'm kind of like well i kind of I, I don't say i i understand what it's like for example to be a black person in the united states but i do know what it's like to be a white person in in africa you know and i do know what it's like to be a white person in japan and and being kind of on the outside and and everybody immediately knows you're on the outside you know they, they you you uh if you count, encounter somebody of your own, you know, ethnicity, it, it might take you a little while to realize that that person might be an outsider. But immediately, you know, like, here I am right in your face here. Um, you know, I've had this experience in Japan of forgetting that I wasn't Japanese, you know, by, uh, after a few years, I could speak the language and everything. And I was pretty steeped in the culture. And I would often just forget that I wasn't I wasn't Japanese and then something would happen, you know, that would remind me some reaction I got from somebody and go, oh yeah, I'm not, you know, they can see that I'm not. Actually, one of the first time, it was kind of a weird experience. I'm sorry to go on this, but it's 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 funny. The first time I went to, to England, I'd been living in Japan for years and I went to England and walking around in, I don't know, London or somewhere, I suddenly realized that nobody here knows I'm a foreigner until I open my mouth, which was not the same. You know, in Japan, they knew it immediately. They could just look at me and they'd know I was a foreigner. Over there, I would have to say something. And as soon as I say something, then they know I'm a foreigner. But, but otherwise, I can be incognito, which I, didn't, I couldn't do that in Japan. And so that, that was, it was just those, those kind of experiences. It, you, know, you have enough of them and they pile on. But it's, it's hard to say anything really definite, which is why I sort of try to stay away from those issues because they tend to be, they, it tends to be something people like to argue about. And I, I'm like, well, I don't really want to argue about this. I, I just, because I just think it's interesting, you know, and, uh, and I don't want to argue about it. But if, if somebody sincerely wants to talk about it, I can, I can go for hours talking about it because I find it, I find the whole dynamic of it really interesting. Fascinating. Well, Brad, thank you very much. This has been such an interesting conversation. Brad Warner, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.